Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, third time's a charm with another tentative deal between Longshoremen and their maritime employers. Will we now finally address the Vancouver Port's atrocious global ranking? Plus, as July comes to a close, wildfires burn across BC and Canada. Climate scientist Andrew Weaver joins us to discuss this month being the world's warmest month on record. And how badly are Airbnb rentals contributing to the housing crisis? Plus, former Premier and MP Ujil Dasan joins us to discuss his new career as a fiction writer. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. The BC Maritime Employers Association and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union announced late yesterday they have come to a tentative agreement. Both sides are encouraging their respective members to ratify the agreement, even though there are no details uh, on this new deal. Now, the previous deal included an increase of 19.2% of wages over four years and a signing bonus of $3,000, which would mean uh, a unionized longshore worker's median annual wage would go from $136,000 a year to $162,000, not including pension and benefits. Now, hopefully there will be a deal because according to our next guest, there are bigger challenges at the Vancouver port. It's inefficient when you compare it to other ports globally. Joining me now to discuss the issue is Carlo Day, Director of the Trade and Investment Centre at the Canada West Foundation. Carlo, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be back on CKNW. Uh, I guess the first question is, this is a tentative deal, third time's a charm, some have said. Uh, uh, are you quite hopeful that this will be the deal and uh, we can go on and, and, and move forward from here? Well, certainly. You, know, you can't take third time's a charm type of... Uh, frameworks for dealing with something as critical to the nation um, as our ability to move goods in and out. Again, we rely on trade for two-thirds of our GDP uh, in this country. The Port of Vancouver is the largest port, arguably the most important one we have. So yes, uh, one has to be hopeful, but hopefully we'll have more than hope. Uh, Now, this deal, like many deals, uh, you know, it's always going to be about dollars, uh, in regards to the contract itself. Um, others have said this is also a, a, about an existential issue, which is automation as well in this port. So there's a couple of things in, in this conversation. First and foremost, um, the, the the financial deal and also the time, a four-year deal. Um, is this, do you think, to a certain degree, will bring some surety, uh, some confidence uh, uh, for the port itself and for Canada that, look, we have a longer-term deal now, and we can move forward from here and, and really focus on uh, attracting new business? Certainly. And in attracting new business, you're not doing it in, or we're not doing it in, the, in a vacuum. We're competing with other ports, certainly ports in North America, i.e. the U.S. West Coast ports. Now, the U.S. Union, the exact equivalent of the ILWU in Canada, they're, they're U.S. brothers, um, just inked a six-year deal. So really, four years is the minimum, I think, that we can have if we want to maintain uh, hopes of being competitive with the Americans and protect not just jobs, but the dock workers' unions. Um, you know, you want to see business continue, and it is a competitive environment, and the Americans have, um, they're looking at a, a, a six-year deal. That's what's on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, is that our, 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 our I guess our, our, our competition right now is worrying about what they do in Seattle, what they do in Long Beach, Los Angeles. Um, in your mind, from what you can see, do you think we're competitive at this point? So 
The objective third-party data, the World Bank and Standard & Poor's have for several years now done a comparison of efficiency at container ports uh, globally. And there's very, very sound methodology behind this. We at Canada West have spent an hour um, with the report authors going through their data set, their methodology, et cetera. It's a very sophisticated operation. So this isn't subjective analysis or opinion. This is data. And according to that, um, Port of Vancouver ranked second to last globally in container port um, efficiency. Now, we need a whole nother show <laughs> to go into the methodology and then to disaggregate the data. But it's certainly alarming. Prince Rupert did better than Vancouver by four spots. So there's six from the bottom. Um, this objective measurement is is really troubling. No West Court no West Coast ports did well, but we're certainly down there um, close to the bottom globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why is that in your mind, broadly speaking? Um, is it a lack of automation? Uh, is it, um, you know, just their pinch points, uh, bottlenecks uh, in our trade, in movement of trade? What, what are some of the broad reasons why we are inefficient? So there are specific instant, uh, issues around the port operation. The study measures uh, the time it takes from when a ship electronically uh, by radio signal triggers its entrance into the area, the, the port area, the, 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 the anchorage or the, whatever the area is for the port till the time that the ship gives um, all clear and pushes off. And in there, the issue for us was port uh, anchorage wait times. Um, That was a major issue. But disaggregating it further, it appeared that part of the issue was containers being backed up. So ships were backed up at the port trying to move containers, and that caused ships to wait longer. That's a really, really simplistic explanation, and it doesn't do justice. And I'm sure the people that did the survey would kicking me under the table right now um, for that abbreviated explanation. But that gives you an idea. It's one of the factors where we really stood out in international comparisons. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Vancouver ranked 347th out of 348 when it comes to uh, sort of uh, the top ports in, in the world. Um, now, McKinsey, the consulting firm, also did a report on port on ports as well. And what what can be gleaned from that? I think that report was in 2019. Yeah, so the interesting issue there is we think of automation in the popular sense as um, you know, bringing in the robot and suddenly the whole plant um, is putting out cars faster and cheaper. But an automobile plant or a port are complex systems. You have inputs, outputs, you have many components, many different jobs working at the all that have to work harmoniously. Uh, I I give the analogy of Charlie Chaplin and that uh, famous clip of Charlie Chaplin on the assembly line. It speeds up and things start flying all over the place. If you think about that with a complex system like the port, you realize that automation for the port means automation for the entire system. So everything from ships coming in, loading and offloading, drayage or moving, items um, from containers when they're offloaded into trucks, transport or other things, and then further down the line, 
um, the rail system and the roads have to be equipped to handle the improved volumes. You also need new skills. It's not just that you lose 100 dock workers. You're suddenly in the market for, I don't know, 10, 20 systems engineers, computer engineers, uh, or, or robotics folks. Um, so the skill set changes as well, and you have to assure that you have people that can meet the new skills. And the McKinsey report showed that that tended to be a weakness in places that um, did automation. It took a while for the entire system to catch up to some of the changes like uh, automated cranes or autonomous trucks. So uh, are, are these ports that are... Um have been relying on automation, have moved towards auto- automation. I think the ports of Rotterdam, something of that sort, Singapore. Um, they're efficient, but it, it took a while to find that efficiency is what you're saying. I mean, you have to have the right people then. Correct. Uh, correct. And I, I don't think this came as a surprise to anyone at the port but uh, or the ports that have done this. But I think the scope and the difficulty um, may have taken may have taken. Um, people uh, or, or some of the implementers back. Now, during the newscast, we, of course, uh, heard about um, the situation presently in Soyuz. Many wildfires continue to rage here in B.C. and Canada and in 10 countries around the Mediterranean as well. Heat waves have blanketed much of North America, Europe and Asia. In fact, 21 of the 30 hottest days ever recorded globally occurred uh, July this year. This month is not only on track to be the hottest July on record, but also the hottest month ever. Uh, certainly many have said, look, this is not just over the last 150 years or so uh, in regards to the records that we have, but some researchers, researchers believe that the final temperature may be the warmest in tens of thousands of years. Joining me now to discuss this entire issue of the warmest July uh, ever is Andrew Ivory is a professor in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at the University of Victoria and former leader of the BC Green Party. Andrew, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you for having me on my show. And sorry for the short delay. I was busy picking peaches that have ripened far too early this year. <laughs> not, not a problem. You have your priorities and good for you. That's that's very important, my friend. Let's just talk about the, the bigger issue here just for a moment. And I don't mean to, to make this depressing for people, of course, yeah. uh, be, but, but these are hard numbers, they're reality. Um, what does this say to you uh, in regards to moving forward? Not only just the news we're getting, but how do we respond to this news on, on the public policy side, uh, on on not only just government but from 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 industry as well? Yeah. So th- there's there's an ongoing cognitive dissonance out there about the scale of the problem and what needs to be done, and there's kind of these uh, two parallel pathways moving forward. On the one hand, you have those who are becoming very anxious and, 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 and taking extreme measures to try to get governments to wake up to these things. These are the Extinction Rebellion folk, people who are throwing paint on paintings. I'm not sure how that helps anything, but, mm-hmm. but there, are, there are elements of our society very, very stressed by the problem. And there's other elements of our society who seem to think that it's not a big deal and um, that sometimes it'll just fix itself. Well, it won't. Uh, the scale of the challenge is huge, but we have all the technology in place here in the world to deal with this problem if there is a will. Science can never answer that, right? Science Mm -hmm. can never say, should we preserve our um, environment for future generations, or should we just have a big party today and just let them pick up the scraps down the road? Uh, Unfortunately, I think most people think we should, um, but 
the uh, indications are, are not really very reassuring that we're doing anything. And as you know, Chance, I've been in this business as a climate scientist since the 1980s. I've seen it all before. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, at least people are talking about it now, uh, but it, we still have a lot, a lot to do. Mm-hmm. If, if, and it's, if you could wave a wand right now, uh, King for a day, uh, yep. what would be two or three things that you would like to see done um, uh, in regards to actually having an impact? Uh, king, king for the day. I, oh, that would be fantastic. Wouldn't that be the benevolent <laughs> you, you could have other people picking your peaches is what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> well, that's the first thing. And they could go to pick my figs next because they're also far too early this year. Um, no, I mean, the, the, we know what the cause of the problem is. The cause of the problem are greenhouse gases arising from the combustion of fossil fuels. Each and every person is part of the problem. And that's really empowering because each and every one of us is also part of the solution. The biggest magic wand would be, let's for BC, for example, is let's ask the question, where do our emissions come from in BC? Well, 40% of BC's emissions come from transportation. Mm-hmm. And so the magic wand in BC is let's get out of our a gas-powered car and let's get into you know, living closer to work if we can, more uh, efficient forms of transportation like e-bikes or, e- or cars that have electric motors or walking or public transit. That, that is the biggest um, thing we could do in BC. But there's so many other things. You know, how many of us have old furnaces at home and, and putting in a heat pump, shifting away from natural gas and oil combustion to heat pumps saves you money, keeps you cool in the summer, and is good for your health. Mm-hmm. So we've got there, and there are incentive programs here. I mean, I, I just look when I go to the store, for example, when I look where I'm buying something from, I try to buy local. And why I'm doing that, because there's embodied emissions in the stuff that we buy. So if we have a choice between two apples, one from New, uh, Okanagan and the other from New Zealand, I'd be going for the Okanagan apple seven days out of seven because we know not only is it better, it's the BC mm-hmm. apple, but it's produced closer to home. The bigger uh, uh, fixes will, re- I mean, from a government perspective, we really have got to stop subsidizing the oil and gas sector. It's outrageous mm-hmm. um, scale of the subsidies. Um, both in BC and elsewhere, because we're basically, you know, the role of taxation and regulatory policy is to, you know, put in place tax measures or regulatory policy on things that are bad for us and kind of incentivize those that aren't. Well, we seem to incentivize those that is bad. And we're taking a long time to introduce that which is good. There's no surprise there. If you're undercutting the market by subsidizing the oil and gas sector, then no surprise. We should be focusing on value-added. What is our strategic strength here in British Columbia? Well, we are. Uh, we have access to enormous amounts of renewable energy. Why aren't we focusing on rejuvenating a manufacturing industry, a clean manufacturing industry, one that actually uses clean power to produce widgets? Perhaps in Terrace, where we have a, uh, you know, a, a, on a rail line to Prince Rupert, which is the gateway to Asia, and Chicago, which is the gateway to the eastern seaboard. Mm-hmm. There's opportunities there as well. And so there's, I mean, I, I view every environmental challenge through the lens of the opportunity it creates for innovation. And that is where, we, where it's empowering because we're all, we can all do our little bit and our collective little bits is a big bit. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you know, if we get a, you know, everyone likes to blame governments and industry. Well, we elect governments and we buy crap, excuse my language, that industry makes. We have our power. We have power there, too. We have agency in all aspects of this problem because mm-hmm. we are consumers and we elect people. And, and, and so it's really about putting climate change in your, de- in your decision-making process on a day-to-day basis and recognizing that small differences, things that changes of our behavior, save you money 
and are good for the environment and actually preserve what we have for future generations. Now, as we talk, LNG uh, has been approved, the Cedar LNG project. It's a smaller project, but it's yeah. moving forward. It'll probably be another one with that. LNG Canada, the biggest project that was approved a few years ago, is in the midst of construction, and which is two trains, but they want to move to four, which essentially is more refri- bigger refrigeration units for, yeah. for our listeners, basically doubling in size. You've yeah. got the TMX pipeline close to being completed. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, uh, we're still fighting over the the last sentence in a, in a piece of legislation. I recall many a long time ago, you mentioned that you don't need to have the most perfect. And I don't know how you phrase it, but the most perfect legislation. If it's eighty yeah. percent there, ninety percent there, you're still heading in the right direction. Exactly. I mean, yeah. So, in regards to the fossil fuels, the oil and gas, I mean. Should we have a freeze in your mind moving forward? Just, there's just no more LNG industry after this. Whatever you've approved, you're approved. We're walking away from it after this? Well, well the gov- governments around the world have de facto agreed to that because they agreed in 2015 to the signing of the Paris Accord to keep lim- warming below two degrees and uh, substantially below two degrees. Well, in order to do that, the day they signed that, we had to Im- immediately put a halt on any new construction of oil and gas uh, facilities anywhere in the world. That's what was signed. But I think they don't realize what they signed. And so people think that they can sign that and then go on busy in their merry ways doing the same old, same old. But no, you can't. So, so we've already broken one and a half degrees. We're, all, we're going to break two degrees. We've only realized 1.1 to 1.2 already. And the reason why I say we've broken uh, 1.5 degrees is there are things called pesky aerosols out there that even if we stop um, burning all fossil fuels around the world, we'll warm by another 0.5 degrees because of the fact that these aerosols actually cool the planet. And they're also produced as a byproduct of combustion of fossil fuels. So it's a very big problem. But again, you know, we should be investing in technology that does exist to draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and sequester it directly in deep uh, sedimentary basins, for example, under, at, under the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. We know where it came from. That's where it came from. Let's put it back there. Again, the technology exists. It's are people willing to pay for it? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a bit like, um, you know, it's a, a really corny and overused kind of analogy, but it's a bit like putting a frog in boiling water. And by the time the frog realizes the water's going to boil, it's too hot to jump out. We're doing exactly the same thing, except there's 8 billion frogs on this earth, not all of whom have agency. Most, most people do. And certainly most of whom do, don't actually realize the seriousness of this issue. So, uh, but again... It's solvable. It's not like it isn't solvable. And the danger here is we always think that we'll solve it down the road. But unfortunately, that's not how the climate system works. The climate system responds to cumulative carbon emissions. We've put, already put up an awful lot. We all have an awful lot of, of unrealized warming as we equilibrate to existing levels of greenhouse gases. And um, what we need to do is start drawing those down as well. So I just want to confirm, when we signed, uh, the 200 countries uh, countries signed a, yep. a Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, they pledged to try to keep the long-term global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius yep. above the pre-industrial uh, period. Uh, so you're saying we're already past that, that even if we stop today, we couldn't 100%. stop that. So you're saying... Yeah. So it is exactly. two two degrees Celsius something we could reach, or do you think that's just we should we should forget I, I, that? I don't think we will. I think it's all hands on deck for three degrees right now. Wow. And that's really really serious. Um, uh, humans have not existed on the face of this earth uh, at temperatures that we're heading to in the next couple of decades. Uh, you know, ecosystems have struggled to adapt. 
you know, and, and the thing is, if people actually want to go back in time, the climate science community has been saying the same thing. Well, you mean, I was driving you guys nuts in the legislature as I would say, saying Not the me. same thing, speech after speech <laughs> after speech after speech as well. Right? We've known what the problem is for decades, mm-hmm. and what we're what we're not doing is showing. I won't I won't say political will because it's partly political will, but it's also. I mean, I, I, I frankly think we should. Um, it, it, it is a bit of an emergency, and I frankly think that, like when smoking, we should not allow fossil fuel companies to advertise anymore. We should not allow them to lobby uh, uh, politicians. Because we know the historical effects of the lobbying from the fossil fuel industry, and we know the historical damage that has been done by the fossil fuel industry in trying to undermine scientific credibility on this. There's lots of work being done on that. Mm-hmm. Frankly, it's time for payback. You know, you guys, have, you guys have undermined many of our abilities to move forward. And stop. Enough is enough. No longer can you lobby, and no longer can you advertise. I'm sick and tired, Jazz, of... of of, of hearing LNG Canada trying to claim that we're going to save China from themselves. It's a lot of hogwash. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. But perhaps it'll fall land nicely on a few people who, you know, who believe that we're good people in British Columbia, and we are, and that this is just doing our part for the global problem. We're not. We're actually doing our part to make the global problem worse because LNG from northeastern BC is deep, deep LNG, uh, natural gas. It is very inefficient to get it out. And frankly, I don't even think we're going to ship BC gas because there's no requirement in the statutes to do so. We'll be shipping conventional gas from from Alberta if we ship any at all, because I still don't believe LNG Canada is going to. It's like with TMX, right? The pipeline. Who are they going to ship their stuff to? Like the market is it's it was the most egregious waste of taxpayers money at a time that Kinder Morgan was trying to, you know, exit themselves from that project because the market collapsed on it. It, it was designed to uh, bring heavy oil to the California refineries with a predicated barrel of uh, oil at $150 a, a barrel. Well, it's discovered back in shale and they don't need it anymore. So who's it going to go to? I don't know. But we're wasting billions of taxpayers' money as we try to maintain a status quo while the world burns around us. It just is like cognitive dissonance on steroids. Yeah. Andrew, uh, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to having you on. And it's a message, I think, that we, it's a conversation we need to continue to have because uh, we saw, as we continue to see this month, uh, huge challenges before us. And I really do appreciate your thoughtful oh, and pleasure. at and times I, blunt you know, comments. We, we can look to December. Australia is going to be on fire as the El Nino carries forward in December. So yeah. this isn't going away anytime soon, but it'll be Australia's turn uh, in a few months. Thank you so much, Andrew. Take care. Let's talk Airbnb for a moment. The BC government is promising to reduce uh, province-wide regulations on short-term rentals this fall. It's not the only jurisdiction looking to rein in apps like Airbnb. The latest push for regulations comes from Quebec in the form of Bill 25, which was passed recently. The legislation rose quickly, uh, largely in response to the deaths of seven people at a property hosted on Airbnb in Montreal in March. There was a fire there, which was later found to be, which uh, led to the death of those seven people. Uh, and it, it was found out later that the uh, the property itself is operating without a license. Now, the new, new rules will see short-term rental platforms like Airbnb in Quebec. They'll be made responsible to verify the, that properties advertised on their platforms are properly licensed. If a host is found to be Operating outside those regulations, Airbnb will face penalties, incentivizing the company to ensure its own listings are above board. Now, here in British Columbia, much
much of those regulations falls on municipalities. Uh, under the City of Vancouver regulations, you will need a valid business license to operate a short-term rental, and it's illegal to operate a short-term rental that isn't your principal residence. So simple, right? Well, according to city staff, there are 4,000, over 4,000 active listings for short-term rentals in Vancouver. So far in 2023, only 132 licenses have been suspended out of that 4,120 violation tickets were issued with 54 units flagged for investigations and audits. Now, the current fine is about $1,000 per, is $1,000 per violation, which is the maximum allowed under the provincial law. Now, Vancouver Councilor Lenny Zhao was on this program last week talking about why there are so many illegal short-term rentals. Take a listen. Well, lack of enforcement as well as really, it is the fact that we need more hotel space in Vancouver. And Vancouver is a very popular that so many people coming here and uh, they, could, they, could, they couldn't find any hotel space. So short-term rental is their option. So there's a huge demand over there. So that's why I want to be very clear. We need to support short-term rental. In fact, we need to support more because as we all know, Vancouver is very popular. But we, we are only talking about the illegal short-term rental here. The illegal short-term rental is not acceptable in the city of Vancouver. And it's not just specific to Vancouver. This is happening throughout British Columbia. You also read about it in major centres around the globe, from London to to Barcelona to New York to Toronto. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, short-term rentals like Airbnb is Sonia Fristino, the BC Green Party leader. Sonia, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Jess. So what would you like to see here in British Columbia? Uh, The B.C. government is, of course, uh, promising to introduce province-wide regulations uh, when it comes to short-term rentals this fall. What would you like to see in that legislation? Yeah, we made a call on this uh, back at the beginning of May. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that we want to see in that legislation is a provincial registry of short-term rentals that enables data sharing. Uh, between local governments of province and rental platforms. So right now, as you pointed out, municipalities are kind of on their own for uh, assessing how many short-term rentals are, which ones are licensed, which ones aren't. And it would really help if the province stepped in and uh, created that that registry and also um, authorized regional districts to issue business licenses. So right now, unless you're in a municipality, you you can't issue business licenses. So there's a a kind of unregulated realm in anything outside of urban areas. And then support the compliance and enforcement. And I think the the comments that were made earlier about this, how challenging it is for cities to do this compliance and enforcement on limited budgets, but also with limited uh, ability to fine. A $1,000 fine is probably seen as the cost of doing business for some people. And uh, But in the bigger picture, Jazz, mm-hmm. I think we have to really ask the question of when we're in a housing crisis and when we are uh, allowing for this kind of unfettered uh, profiteering off of the kind of housing that we need, rental units in particular, Um, governments need to show that they take the housing crisis and the needs of the people who live here and who need housing here in British Columbia seriously. Mm -hmm. I think you raise a very good point. Uh, I had heard a story not too long ago of of an individual who rented a two-bedroom apartment. This is probably about five or seven years ago. I think the rents were at that time about $3,000 a month, a lot higher now. But that individual then uh, rented it out on Airbnb and would make uh, uh, close to $4,500 a month. 
So that $1,500 was profit every month uh, out of a condo that he was renting. He lived somewhere else. Now imagine if that individual did five or seven condominiums at a time. That's a business now. Um, how do we stop something like that? Because you know Vancouver is one challenge already in the middle of a housing crisis. But you do that on the Gulf Islands. You do that in many of these smaller communities. That's, that has a huge, huge impact right away. Yeah, and there's a quite a an amazing piece in Ricochet that came out last week about exactly this, the, the sort of Airbnb scam in Montreal and the way that that led to not only, you know, the fire and the really tragic deaths of people, but to the fact that long-term rental units, uh, say an apartment building with six or 12 units was being uh, either one person would come in and say to the landlord, hey, you're renting those units for $1,500 a month each. I'll rent them all from you for $3,000 a month each. You have one tenant. I'll take care of the whole building. And then that person turns around, uh, uses them as short-term rentals. And the, the, the loss here is not just the people who have been evicted from those suites who had uh, affordable rent. But then you're seeing a driving up of property values and rent costs uh, that are reflecting these increase in rental costs uh, around the city. And what I think we need uh, as a starting place is for governments to really recognize that policies and laws shape outcomes and that unless governments uh, really determine that they're going to make affordable rentals a priority, Mm -hmm. then we're going to see uh, this inevitable profiteering that is happening from what should be housing units for people who live in British Columbia and have turned into uh, profit-making units for people that are willing to, um, you know, capitalize on the lack of regulation, legislation, and policy. But shouldn't shouldn't these short-term rentals... In, and if, just talking on, on housing affordability, not just mm-hmm. oh, outright just be banned. And the reason I say this is that uh, it, the, the impact is so profound on a community uh, that, you know, in, in an area like Vancouver, it's very easy to rent something, let's say a one-bedroom for $3,000, which is 2900 I think is the average price now, median price. Uh, you could easily make a lot more money just Airbnb, Airbnb-ing the whole thing, uh, and you'd make a lot more money doing that. I mean, at some point, we have to ask ourselves, why do you wish to be involved in that business? Because, uh, you know, Airbnb is based in the U.S. We're not paying, they're paying very few taxes. Mm-hmm is here. It all goes away somewhere else mm-hmm. that maybe we just don't need to be in this business. I know it's harsh and perhaps yeah. anti-development, some would argue, but I don't see an upside beyond, hey, we're short a thousand hotel rooms in downtown Vancouver, which we are. Uh, but is that the overarching issue in the middle of a housing crisis? Yeah, and that's exactly the question I think that we need to ask. And uh, does the government put the priorities of the people who live here ahead of the priorities of really uh, not that many people who are uh, generating these enormous profits from from short-term rentals and to companies, as you point out, that are not based here, that are taking those profits elsewhere. What are you, what are you seeing? Think, sorry, what are you seeing in your community, your Gulf, Gulf Islands? Mm-hmm. And, and what are you hearing? What are you seeing? Yeah, for, for certain, everywhere in BC, including where I live in the Cowichan Valley on the Gulf Islands, uh, we see this absolute pressure uh, on people because there are so few rentals available. And uh, that pressure means that the 
you know, the supply and demand equation means that those rental costs keep going up and up and people are finding it incredibly difficult to find a place to live that's affordable and that's stable. And this is the other thing is that motivation uh, that's there of if I evict these tenants, uh, I can I can make, you know, two or three times amount of money per month than I'm making right now. That is a, a that is a pretty strong motivation for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we have to determine uh, the role that government plays. Th- this idea that the market is just going to take care of things. Government has a job to regulate uh, and to ensure that the people and the public interest are protected from these unmitigated kind of profit-seeking sources of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know if any jurisdiction just caps the amount of Airbnb or, or sorry, short-term rentals that are allowed mm-hmm. in their community? Is that is that something potentially we may want to talk about and mm-hmm. think about and, and, and implement in legislation? Yeah, I think that that would be an excellent place uh, to start and just to put a hard cap on how many of these units could uh, you know, a, a community can sustain in a reasonable way. And uh, those are licensed and anything that's not unlicensed is is really not allowed to exist. And so we need that strength of legislation and regulation in order to have that kind of outcome where a community uh, collectively and a local government can determine mm-hmm. what what is the cap that we would allow here? But in, again, Jazz, it, the housing crisis is so severe right now in British Columbia that we have to treat it like the emergency that it is. I mean, I've traveled around to communities all over and people are, you know, hospitals can't find doctors and nurses to work there because there's nowhere for the doctors and nurses to live in those communities. Mm-hmm. Right? We, we are in dire conditions. Well, I always remind myself when I drive down Oak and I'm coming into work in the morning, you see these 70 zero rental buildings, three stories, that when the federal government was in the rental business, that's what we built. We incentivized yeah. uh, developers to do that. But, you know, they got out of the business in the 1980s and they, with the deficit fight in the 90s with the federal liberals, they were just out of the housing business. And we walked our way into this and we got to get out of it. And Airbnb yeah. and a lot of other short-term rentals certainly aren't helping, that's for sure. Sonia, thank yeah. you so much. Look forward to having you on again in the fall uh, once this legislation is introduced. We can uh, have a more fulsome conversation about it. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Jess. Take care. Our next guest was born in the state of Punjab in India in 1946. He emigrated to the UK in 1964. And from there to Canada in 1968, he's been the Premier of British Columbia. He's been a Liberal Member of Parliament and Cabinet Minister, uh, served as a Minister of Health, a Minister responsible for multiculturalism, human rights and immigration. Well, you probably know his name and his political career. His name is Urjil Dasanj. He has a new title, writer, and in this case, a writer of fiction. Uh, Mr. Dasanj is the author of a new book titled The Past is Never Dead. I really like that title name. Uh, he joins us now. Ujil, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you. Good to see you. It's been a very long time. I know. Yeah, so <laughs> tell me, you know, uh, most of the time when you have ever talked, uh, I've been on the reporting end asking you questions, uh, and this time I get to introduce you as Ujil Dasanj, writer. Uh, this isn't your first book, obviously. There's um, your autobiography, but this is the first work of fiction. Did you always want to go down this route? For a long time. Really? Um, yeah, I actually uh, took a typing course. I began a typing course in 1983. <laughs> <Typing> <laughs> and I couldn't, my fingers didn't do the walking, as they say. <laughs> and uh, so I quit. 
after a couple of nights because everybody else was at halfway through the book and I was on the first couple of pages. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had a couple of novels in my head then. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, you know, and I, then I hesitated uh, about writing my autobiography. But once I was able to do that, that kind of, I think, uh, opened up the um, intellectual arteries um, to then think about what I wanted to do back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, well, life must have gotten in the way too. Well, life and typing both got in the way, um, <laughs> a lack of it. Um, and I um, obviously the Golden Temple issue flared up and I said a few things and then one thing led to another. I never had time uh, from that or other politics. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a fictional account, as I said, on, uh, I guess the best way to describe it is cast hold on the diaspora. Yes. The Indian diaspora. Yes. So walk me through what, what this story is about. It's a story of a, of a young chap um, whose father uh, is, um, his legs are mutilated um, because he's accused of stealing somebody's ox. Mm-hmm. Um and the cops beat him up, and and this young kid who's very young, six or seven at the at the time, um, watches all this, and and um, the father, shortly after the Quit India movement of Mahatma Gandhi, quits India mm-hmm. to get rid of um, to flee away from caste, uh, comes to Britain on borrowed money, mm-hmm. and then returns after ten years to um, bring his only child, the son. And, of course, his wife uh, with him back to Bedford, which is where he had settled, working in a, form, working in a foundry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the story of that young chap who had run-ins in the village about caste. The old man himself had run-ins. And the caste, how the caste actually follows him into Britain mm. um, and uh, how it victimizes him and, and essentially... Um, is fatal um, for his wife's life, who happens to be from a different caste, mm-hmm. um, sort of an honor killing. Now, some of the story, um, it weaves very well with your personal story from India to the, to the UK, Bedford, and, and to, to, to Canada. Um, how much of your personal experience is weaved into this story? Um, some of the things that, that happen to people Mm-hmm. Um, in this novel, the protagonist, the father, um, uh, some of those things happen to my best friends who are no more. Mm-hmm. Um, and they happen to be living in Bedford when I was living there. So it's fictionalized. Uh, the names are not, not real names and events are also fictionalized. Mm-hmm. Um, but the pain is real. The wounds, um, both on the psyche and the body were real. And, um... And I, I witnessed caste or the impact of caste on the diaspora within the first week of me being in Bedford. I still had the turban on. I didn't speak any English. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had maybe grade six or four knowledge of reading and writing English um, as per Canadian standards. And, um, and this old man who was very close friend of my older cousin's uh, is slapped by uh, a so-called higher caste uh, person um, over some disagreement at a, a gathering where we're simply having tea. Hmm. And I just froze. And other people intervened and, and you know, uh, it was a minor disagreement over dumb stuff. 
but it leads to violence because, you know, the, the caste divisions and the caste hierarchy has lent itself to violence. It is, in fact, violence. Uh, violence is so endemic to caste, um, the, the violence of the upper caste on, upon the so-called lower castes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this story is about that violence, both psychological and physical, that caste does to people. Why does caste, in your mind, persist um, after all that we know, the education that we have, the broader understanding as humanity? But caste, particularly in the context of South Asia and India, is, you know... It, this is where you stand in life based on your birth. Why does that persist, do you think? Well, I mean, there have been religions so-called um, devised to uh, end caste like Sikhism, and, mm-hmm. but Sikhism has as much caste as any other, mm-hmm. including the Islamic faith in India has caste. Mm-hmm. Caste amongst Indians, the people from the Indian subcontinent, Pakistanis and Indians has never gone away, no matter what religion you take on, whether you're a convert Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, I think, partly because you grow up in a very religious kind of a context in India. Indian subcontinent is a very religious place in mm-hmm. many ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's difficult, but still relatively easier to fight against racism, fight against poverty, fight against class, uh, status, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, because there is no religious sanction to them. Mm-hmm. They are secular concepts and they are secular things in themselves, whereas caste has the blessings of religion mm-hmm. and and it pursues the converts into Sikhism, it pursues the converts into Islam, and it never gives up. And that is because a very few of us uh, those of us that are in so-called, um, you know, not such low castes, mm-hmm. uh, have no incentive to fight it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, in fact, have every incentive to, it makes us feel, quote-unquote, good mm-hmm. if we don't consciously think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's why it doesn't go away. Who, who wants to give up all the privileges? <laughs> that is true. Do you see caste in Vancouver? Yes. Yeah, still. I, I, I've... Oh, yes, absolutely. Even for, I mean, England to a certain degree, sometimes I would say well, it's an older country. It has its own caste system uh, without immigrants coming. It's always been there, the English caste system. We all, I always view us as the new world, and, and while well, there is hierarchy, I always feel at least we're younger, so we perhaps may not go down the road, or at least it may not be as prevalent here, but you still think it is in within, within South Asian community. Oh, here. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the class in Britain has also changed. Uh, I mean, caste has changed uh, in places like Canada. I mean, in fact, the young people are killing it to a certain extent because if you're if they're not conscious, they make you know boyfriends and girlfriends, and they want to get married, and sometimes against parents' wishes. So they're kind of trying to demolish the caste. But the, the I'll give you an example. My own, my middle son comes home one day, second year UBC, mm-hmm. uh, and and we had never talked to our children about religion or caste. Mm-hmm. And he was in second year BA. And he comes home, he comes home running, Dad, Dad, are we juts? Like he couldn't yeah. pronounce the word jut yeah. uh, because he never talked about it. So then I told him, I said, you know, like, Let's not let's not talk about the bad guys. <laughs> Jets are supposed to be not necessarily very bright or smart. Yeah. Generally speaking, right? I mean, that's how we we talk about yeah, ourselves. It's a stereotype, right? yeah. Right. Um, and so then that was the time when we sat down with our children. He brought it from UBC. He heard at UBC such and such costs are superior, such and co- such costs are inferior, mm-hmm. and he didn't know what 
kids were talking about. So you wanted to come home and talk to me. And so that's how, you know, in some homes, we teach kids about caste still. Otherwise, why would my son pick it up from UBC? Mm-hmm. We are speaking to former Premier Ujjal Dasanj. He is out with a new book, The Past is Never Dead. It's a novel, a work of fiction. Uh, and uh, it's a wonderful book because it really does look at the caste system uh, and its impact on, on the diaspora. How would he recommend you pick it up? It's called The Past is Never Dead. Um, when you talk about caste and its impact on the diaspora, and we're talking in this case of the Indian context, you know, sometimes I'll have Chinese friends, uh, friends of Korean descent, Japanese descent. The the, the comments are uh, Italian, in Italian background, Greek background. I've heard all this in some context. It may not be specific to ca- uh, caste, but there is that um, generation, or maybe it's young people, who are pushing back to some of the ideas in the old country they don't like and 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 don't relate to or just don't want to deal with. And I think your son's example is a classic example of that. In many ways, I think the story here isn't just a story of a Canadian of Indian heritage. It's a it's a it's a much more diverse story. It's it's a it's a story about um Indian families, uh, no matter where they are. Yeah. Whether you're in Singapore, Hong Kong, Britain, UK, US, Australia, New Zealand, you know, Brazil, no matter where you are uh, as as Indians, people of Indian origin, you know, people of Indian origin went to the Fiji islands and went to other places like the Trinidad and Tobago. Mm-hmm. Um, the caste remained with them. Mm-hmm. Some of it got erased. There were a lot more inter-caste marriages, mm-hmm. uh, maybe out of necessity. Um, and... and uh, but it's not changing as fast uh, as I would like it. I, I, you know, if you ask people who are in the so-called, uh, who we say are in the so-called lower castes, mm-hmm. um, they will tell you they want it dead yesterday, and uh, and it's not it's not dying anytime soon, mm-hmm. um, because um, you hear parents talking amongst themselves. Oh, you know, don't marry this, don't marry that, but you can marry that. You know, if you really want to marry, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's still there. It's well, still there. Oh, yeah. There's gradations of rejection and exception, acceptance. And yeah. I think that that's, it's despicable, right? I mean, and, and the other problem is many of us um, want to be seen to be progressive and radical and wanting to change the world. But when we go back into our private lives, we become the same reactionary people uh, <laughs> that, is, that it, never want to change. Yeah. When I moved to India in 2008, um, I was always, appalled isn't the right word, but taken aback sometimes on some of the traditions that I saw in the villages. Yeah. Now, but it's easy to say, well, that's the villages, it's not the big city, but the big city just hides it a little bit better. There's more subtlety and nuance, but it's still there, right? But there's anonymity in, in the big city, yeah. which isn't there in the village. In the, in the village in old times, in my village, everybody knew everybody, yeah. um, the but, cast and all. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, even in the big cities, you know, you sit with... Uh, the movers and shakers, whether it be in government or business, or as I like to say, the ladies who lunch, there is still that sub- subtlety and nuance, even in a big old city oh, like oh, Delhi, absolutely. it's still there, which yeah, is quite yeah. fascinating. You, you, know, you can tell from people's eyebrows as they move what caste they may belong to. <laughs> <laughs> Humanity's need for hierarchy sometimes and is, is a fascinating, fascinating trait that you would think that we would be evolved enough 
today to be moved beyond, but we certainly aren't. No, we aren't. And, and, and the fact is that if you are uh, slightly urbane and rich and educated, you can hide the prejudices more than someone who comes from straight from the village like me. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, I want to just ask you a couple of questions on present day politics. Um, you watch from afar, but what I've always admired about you is you have no problem challenging your own side sometimes with BNDP or Liberal federally. Um, how do you see things today in, in regards to our political discourse, how we talk to each other, our ability to address vital issues, so very important to our economic interests, our cultural interests, all of that? How do you, how do you see us nationally at the moment? I think that... Um, Discourse has become very angry yeah. on both sides. Um, I just heard some remarks from the Prime Minister which seemed to be equally sort of incensed. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and it's the anger that's going to, uh, I think, be um, a problem for the country. Mm-hmm. Um, if the leaders uh, can't conduct themselves in, in a way that is um, inducive um, about discussion and doesn't uh, make each other angry and doesn't personalize the debate, um, uh, then I think the country will suffer. And, you know, I like I was sitting with a couple of young kids yesterday, uh, Chinese-Canadian kids in their mm-hmm. 30s, um, and uh, they told me they grew up kind of watching me on TV and listening to me on radio, and they have high hopes for the country. And in fact, they were saying, you know, politics seems to be changing. It's even like in my time, you know, they say B, they always used to say BC politics is a blood sport. Yeah. Uh, but it's now, if that's the case, then Canadian politics and the provincial politics, both in Ontario and Alberta and BC, the places that I can think of, is actually bloodier mm-hmm. than before. Yeah. And that is not good for Canada. That's number one. Number two, and I don't—I mean, no insult to anyone in particular, the existing leaders. But the fact is that we don't have the leaders of the stature of, um, you know, old senior Trudeau um, anymore. We don't have, uh, you know, the Kennedys and the Nassers and the Nehrus of, of that era. Uh, you had, you know, Obama, which, which was a breath of fresh air spent eight years in power without a whiff of scandal and never angry, essentially, at anybody. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that we need to learn from that, how we conduct ourselves. And we're not doing a very good job in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of, the, re- because of the, the nature of the debate and, and the caliber of the debate that we now engage in, I think Canada has been lowered in its stature internationally. Yeah. If 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 the world saw can Canadians debating aspirationally, uh, not angrily, uh, I think Canada will have more weight in the world. Yeah, it is a, a, a fascinating time, certainly. But I think your your comments are absolutely true, and it, it saddens me with the anger, especially because I think it does impact yeah. the kind of talent you attract to politics as well, and that's part of the, part of the problem too. Well, I, there's not much talent, I no. might say. I'm so sorry to say. No, no, I got to hear it sometimes <laughs> on this end. So that's going to be a question. But Jill, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Wish we had another half hour to chat. The book book is called The Past is Never Dead um, by fiction writer, Jill Desange. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.